0: Be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep, tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, chapters 20 and 21. In the previous chapters, Professor Aranax, Concierge, and Ned Land had been given leave from the Nautilus to spend some time hunting on land. In the following chapters, they explore a lush and beautiful tropical island. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do Chapter 20 A Few Days on Land I was much impressed on touching land. Ned Land tried the soil with his feet, as if to take possession of it. However, it was only two months before that we had become, according to the captain, passengers on board the Nautilus, but in reality, prisoners of its commander. In a few minutes, we were within musket shot of the coast. The whole horizon was hidden behind a beautiful curtain of forests, enormous trees. The trunks of which attained a height of two hundred feet were tied to each other by garlands of bindweed, real natural hammocks which a light breeze rocked. They were mimosas, figs, hibiscus, and palm trees mingled together in profusion and under the shelter of their verdant vault grew orchids, leguminous, plants and ferns. But, without noticing all these beautiful specimens of Papuan flora, the Canadian abandoned the agreeable for the useful. He discovered a cocoa tree eat down some of the fruit, broke them, and we drank the milk and ate the nut with a satisfaction that protested against the ordinary food of the Nautilus. Excellent, said Ned Land. Exquisite, replied Concierge and I do not think Said the Canadian, that he would object to our introducing a cargo of coconuts on board. I do not think he would, but he would not taste them. So much the worse for him, said Concier. And so much the better for us, replied Nedland there will be more for us. One word only, Masterland," I said to the harpooner, who was beginning to ravage another coconut tree. Coconuts are good things, but before filling the canoe with them, it would be wise to reconnoitre and see if the island does not produce some substance not less useful. Fresh vegetables would be welcome on board the Nautilus. Master is right, replied concierge, and I propose to reserve three places in our vessel, one for fruits, the other for vegetables, and the third for venison of which I have not yet seen the smallest specimen. Cancier, we must not despair, said the Canadian. Let us continue, I returned, and lie in wait. Although the island seems uninhabited, it might still contain some individuals it would be less hard than we on the nature of game. Ho, ho, said Ned Land, moving his jaw significantly. Well, Ned, said Concier. My word, returned the Canadian. I begin to understand the charms of anthropophagy. Ned, Ned, what are you saying? You, a man-eater? I should not feel safe with you, especially as I share your cabin. I might perhaps wake one day to find myself half-devoured. Friend, Cancier, I like you much, but not enough to eat you unnecessarily. I would not trust you, replied Concier, but enough. We must absolutely bring down some game to satisfy this cannibal, or else one of these fine mornings Master will find only pieces of his servant to serve him. While we were talking thus, we were penetrating the sombre arches of the forest and for two hours, we surveyed it in all directions. Chance rewarded our search for eatable vegetables, and one of the most useful products of the tropical zones furnished us with precious food that we missed on board. I would speak of the breadfruit tree, very abundant in the island of Gilboa, and I remarked chiefly the variety destitute of seeds, which bears in Malaya the name of Rima. Ned Land knew these fruits well. He had already eaten many during his numerous voyages, and he knew how to prepare the eatable substance. Moreover, the sight of them excited him, And he could contain himself no longer. Master, he said, I shall die if I do not taste a little of this breadfruit pie. Taste it, friend Ned. Taste it as you want. We are here to make experiments. Make them. It won't take long said the Canadian. And, provided with a lentil, he lighted a fire on the dead wood that crackled joyously. During this time, Concier and I chose the best fruits of the breadfruit. Some had not then attained a sufficient degree of maturity, and their thick skin covered a white, But rather fibrous pulp. Others, the great number yellow and gelatinous, waited only to be picked. These fruits enclosed no kernel. Concier brought a dozen to Nedland, who placed them on a coal fire after having cut them in thick slices, and while doing this, Repeating, You will see, Master, how good this bread is, more so when one has been deprived of it so long. It is not even bread, added he, but a delicate pastry. You have eaten none, Master. No, Ned. Very well. Prepare yourself for a juicy thing. If you do not come for more, I am no longer the king of harpooners." After some minutes, the part of the fruit that was exposed to the fire was completely roasted. The interior looked like a white pastry, a sort of soft crumb, the flavor of which was like that of an artichoke. It must be confessed, this bread was excellent, and I ate of it with great relish. What time is it now? asked the Canadian. Two o'clock at least, replied Concier. How time flies on firm ground, sighed Netland. Let us be off. Replied Concierge. We returned through the forest and completed our collection by a raid upon the cabbage palms that we gathered from the tops of the trees. Little beans that I recognized as the abro of the Malays and yams of superior quality. We were loaded when we reached the boat. But Ned Land did not find his provisions sufficient. Fate, however, favored us. Just as we were pushing off, he perceived several trees from 25 to 30 feet high, a species of palm tree. At last, at five o'clock in the evening, loaded with our riches, We quitted the shore, and half an hour after, we hailed the Nautilus. No one appeared on our arrival. The enormous iron-plated cylinder seemed deserted. The provisions embarked, I descended to my chamber, and after supper, slept soundly. The next day, 6th of January, nothing new on board. Not a sound inside, not a sign of life. The boat rested along the edge, in the same place in which we had left it. We resolved to return to the island. Ned Land hoped to be more fortunate than on the day before with regard to the hunt. And wished to visit another part of the forest. At dawn, we set off. The boat, carried on by the waves that flowed to shore, reached the island in a few minutes. We landed, and, thinking that it was better to give it to the Canadian, we followed Ned Land whose long limbs threatened to distance us. We wound up the coast towards the west. Then, fording some torrents, he gained the high plain that was bordered with admirable forests. Some kingfishers were rambling along the watercourses, but they would not let themselves be approached. Their circumspection proved to me that these birds knew what to expect from bipeds of our species, and I concluded that, if the island was not inhabited, at least human beings occasionally frequented it. After crossing a rather large prairie, we arrived at the skirts of a little wood that was enlivened by the song and flight of a large number of birds. There are only birds, said Concier. But they are edible, replied the harpooner. I do not agree with you, friend Ned, for I only see parrots there. Friend Cancier, eh? said Ned gravely, the parrot is like pheasant to those who have nothing else. And, I added, this bird, suitably prepared, is worth knife and fork. Indeed, under the thick foliage of this wood, A world of parrots were flying from branch to branch, only needing a careful education to speak the human language. For the moment, they were chattering with parrots of all colours, and grave cockatoos who seemed to meditate upon some philosophical problem, whilst brilliant red lorries passed like a piece of bunting, carried away by the breeze. Papuans with the finest azure colours, and in all a variety of winged things most charming to behold, but few edible. However, a bird peculiar to these lands and which has never passed the limits of the Arrow and Papuan Islands, was wanting in this collection. But fortune reserved it for me before long. After passing through a moderately thick copse, we found a plain obstructed with bushes. I saw then those magnificent birds, the disposition of whose long feathers obliged them to fly against the wind. Their undulating flight, graceful aerial curves, and the shading of their colors attracted and charmed one's looks. I had no trouble in recognizing them. Birds of Paradise!" I exclaimed. The Malays, who carry on a great trade in these birds with the Chinese, have several means that we could not employ for taking them. Sometimes they put snares on the top of high trees that the Birds of Paradise prefer to frequent. Sometimes they catch them with a vicious bird line that paralyzes their movements. They even go so far as to poison the fountains that the birds generally drink from. But we were obliged to fire at them during flight, which gave us few chances to bring them down, and indeed, we vainly exhausted one-half our ammunition. About eleven o'clock in the morning, the first range of mountains that form the center of the island was traversed, and we had killed nothing. Hunger drove us on. The hunters had relied on the products of the chase, they were wrong. Happily, Concier, to his great surprise, made a double shot and secured breakfast. He brought down a white pigeon and a wood pigeon, which, cleverly plucked and suspended from a skewer, was roasted before a red fire of dead wood. While these interesting birds were cooking, Ned prepared the fruit of the bread tree. Then the wood pigeons were devoured to the bones and declared excellent. The nutmeg, with which they are in the habit of stuffing their crops, flavors their flesh and renders it delicious eating. now, Ned, what do you miss now? Some four-footed game, Monsieur Aranax. All these pigeons are only side dishes and trifles, and until I have killed an animal with cutlets, I shall not be content. Nor I, Ned, if I do not catch a bird of paradise. "'Let us continue hunting,' replied Concier. "'Let us go towards the sea. "'We have arrived at the first declivities of the mountain, "'and I think we had better regain the region of forests.' "'That was sensible advice, and we followed out. "'After walking for one hour, We had attained a forest of sago trees. Some inoffensive serpents glided away from us. The birds of paradise fled at our approach, and truly I despaired of getting near one when Concier, who was walking in front, suddenly bent down, uttered a triumphal cry, and came back to me bringing a magnificent specimen. Ah, bravo, concierge. Master is very good. No, my boy, you have made an excellent stroke. Take one of these living birds and carry it in your hand. If Master will examine it, you will see that I have not deserved great merit. Why, Concierge? Because this bird is as drunk as a quail. Drunk? Yes, sir. Drunk with the nutmegs that it devoured under the nutmeg tree, under which I found it. See? "'Friend Ned, see the monstrous effect of intemperance.' "'By Jove!' exclaimed the Canadian. "'Because I have drunk gin for two months, you must need to reproach me.' However, I examined the curious bird. Concier was right. The bird drunk with the juice, was quite powerless. It could not fly. It could hardly walk. This bird belonged to the most beautiful of the eight species that are found in Papua and in the neighboring islands. It was the large emerald bird, the most rare kind. It measured three feet in length, Its head was comparatively small, its eyes placed near the opening of the beak and also small. But the shades of colour were beautiful, having a yellow beak, brown feet and claws, nut-coloured wings with purple tips, pale yellow at the back of the neck and head, and emerald colour at the throat chestnut on the breast and belly. Two horned downy nets rose from below the tail that prolonged the long, light feathers of admirable fineness, and they completed the whole of this marvelous bird that the natives have poetically named the Bird of the Sun. But if my wishes were satisfied by the possession of the bird of paradise, the Canadians were not yet. Happily, about two o'clock, Ned Land brought down a magnificent hog from the brood of those the native call Barry Oontang. The animal came in time for us to procure real quadruped meat. And he was well received. Ned was very proud of his shot. The hog hit by the electric ball fell stone dead. The Canadian skinned and cleaned it properly after having taken half a dozen cutlets, destined to furnish us with a grilled repast in the evening. Then the hunt was resumed, which was still more marked by Ned and Concier's exploits. Indeed, the two friends, beating the bushes, roused a herd of kangaroos that fled and bounded along on their elastic paws. But these animals did not take to flight so rapidly but what the electric capsule could stop their course. Ah, professor, cried Ned Land, who was carried away by the delights of the chase. What excellent game, and stewed, too. What a supply for the Nautilus, two, three, five down and to think that we shall eat that flesh, and that the idiots on board shall not have a crumb. I think that, in the excess of his joy, the Canadian, if he had not talked so much, would have killed them all. But he contented himself with a single dozen of these interesting marsupians, These animals were small. They were a species of those kangaroo rabbits that lives habitually in the hollows of trees and whose speed is extreme. But they are moderately fat and furnished, at least estimable food. We were very satisfied with the result of the hunt. Happy Ned proposed to return to this enchanting island next day, for he wished to depopulate it of all the eatable quadrupeds. But he had reckoned without his host. At six o'clock in the evening, we had regained the shore. Our boat was moored to the usual place. The Nautilus like a long rock, emerged from the waves two miles from the beach. Ned Land, without waiting, occupied himself about the important dinner business. He understood all about cooking well. The Barry u grilled on the coals, soon scented the air with a delicious odour. Indeed, the dinner was excellent. Two wood pigeons completed this extraordinary menu. The sago pasty, the articapa spread, some mangoes, half a dozen pineapples, and the liquor fermented from some coconuts overjoyed us. I even think that my worthy companion's ideas had not all the plainness desirable. Suppose we do not return to the Nautilus this evening, said Concierge. Suppose we never return, added Ned Land. Just then, a stone fell at our feet and cut short the harpooner's proposition. Chapter 21 Captain Nemo's Thunderbolt We looked at the edge of the forest without rising, my hand stopping in the action of putting it to my mouth. Net lands, completing its office. Stones do not fall from the sky," remarked Concier. "Or they would merit the name aerolites. A second stone, carefully aimed, that made a savory pigeon's leg fall from Concier's hand gave still more weight to his observation we all three arose shouldered our guns and were ready to reply to any attack are they apes cried netland i'm afraid they are natives to the boat i said hurrying to the sea It was indeed necessary to beat a retreat, for about twenty natives, armed with bows and slings, appeared on the skirt of a copse that masked the horizon to the right, hardly a hundred steps from us. Our boat was moored about sixty feet from us. The natives approached us, not running, but making hostile demonstrations. Stones and arrows fell thickly. Ned Land had not wished to leave his provisions, and, in spite of his immediate danger, his pig on one side and kangaroos on the other, he went tolerably fast. In two minutes, we were on the shore. To load the boat with provisions and arms, to push it out to sea and ship the oars, was the work of an instant. We had not gone two cable's length when a hundred natives, howling and gesticulating, entered the water up to their waists. I watched to see if their apparition would attract some men from the Nautilus onto the platform. But no. The enormous machine laying off was absolutely deserted. Twenty minutes later, we were on board. The panels were open. After making the boat fast... We entered into the interior of the Nautilus. I descended to the drawing room, from whence I heard some chords. Captain Nemo was there, bending over his organ, and plunged in a musical ecstasy. Captain... He did not hear me. Captain, I said, touching his hand. He shuddered, and turning round, said, Ah, is it you, professor? Well, have you had a good hunt? Have you botanized successfully? Yes, captain. But we have unfortunately brought a troop of bipeds whose vicinity troubles me. What bipeds? Natives. Natives? He echoed ironically. So you are astonished, Professor, at having set foot on a strange land and finding natives? Where are there not any? Besides, they are worse than others, these whom you call natives. But, Captain, how many have you counted? At least a hundred. Monsieur Aronnax, replied Captain Nemo, placing his fingers on the organ stops. When all the natives of Papua are assembled on this shore, the Nautilus will have nothing to fear from the attacks. The captain's fingers were then running over the keys of the instrument, and I remarked that he touched only the black keys, which gave his melodies an essentially Scotch character. Soon he had forgotten my presence and had plunged into a reverie that I did not disturb. I went up again on the platform. Night had already fallen, for, in this low altitude, the sun sets rapidly and without twilight. I could only see the island indistinctly, but the numerous fires lighted on the beach showed that the natives did not think of leaving it. I was alone for several hours, sometimes thinking of the natives, but without any dread of them, for the imperturbable confidence of the captain was catching, sometimes forgetting them to admire the splendors of the night in the tropics. My remembrances went to France, In the train of those zodiacal stars that would shine in some hours' time. The moon shone in the midst of the constellations of the zenith. The night slipped away without any mischance. The islanders frightened, no doubt, at the sight of a monster aground in the bay. The panels were open and would have offered an easy access to the interior of the Nautilus. At six o'clock in the morning of the 8th of January, I went up onto the platform. The dawn was breaking. The island soon showed itself through the dissipating fogs. First the shore, then the summits. The natives were there, more numerous than on the day before. Five or six hundred perhaps, some of them, profiting by the low water, had come onto the coral at less than two cables length from the Nautilus. I distinguished them easily. They were true Papuans with athletic figures, men of good race large high foreheads, large but not broad and flat, and white teeth. Most of these natives were naked. Among them, I remarked some women, dressed from the hips to knees in quite a crinoline of herbs that sustained a vegetable waistband. Some chiefs had ornamented their necks with a crescent and collar of glass beads, red and white, nearly all were armed with bows and arrows and shields and carried on their shoulders a sort of net containing those round stones which they cast from their slings with great skill. One of these chiefs, rather near to the Nautilus, examined it attentively, He was perhaps a maddo of high rank, for he was draped in a mat of banana leaves, notched round the edges, and set off with brilliant colours. I could easily have knocked down this native, who was within a short length, but I thought that it was better to wait for a real hostile demonstration. Between Europeans and natives, it is proper for the Europeans to parry sharply, not to attack. During low water, the natives roamed about near the Nautilus, but were not troublesome. I heard them frequently repeat the word, Asai, and by their gestures, I understood that they invited me to go on land. An invitation that I declined. So that, on that day, the boat did not push off, to the great displeasure of Master Land, who could not complete his provisions. This android Canadian employed his time in preparing the viands and meat that he had brought off the island. As for the natives, They returned to the shore about eleven o'clock in the morning, as soon as the coral tops began to disappear under the rising tide. But I saw their numbers had increased considerably on the shore. Probably they came from the neighboring islands, or very likely from Papua. However, I had not seen a single native canoe. Having nothing better to do, I thought of dragging these beautiful limpid waters, under which I saw a profusion of shells, zoophytes, and marine plants. Moreover, it was the last day that the Nautilus would pass in these parts, if it floated in open sea the next day, according to Captain Nemo's promise. I therefore called Concier, who brought me a little light drag, very like those for the oyster fishery. Now to work. For two hours we fished unceasingly, but without bringing up any rarities. The drag was filled with Midas ears, harps, melames, and particularly the most beautiful hammers I've ever seen. We also brought up some sea slugs, pearl oysters, and a dozen little turtles that were reserved for the pantry. But just when I expected it least, I put my hand on a wonder, I might say a natural deformity, very rarely met with. Concier was just dragging, and his net came up filled with divers' ordinary shells, when, all at once, he saw me plunge my arm quickly into the net, to draw out a shell, and heard me utter a cry. "'What is the matter, sir?' he asked in surprise. "'Has master been bitten?' No, my boy, but I would willingly have given my finger for this discovery. What discovery? This shell, I said, holding up the object with triumph. It is simply an olive porphyry, genus olive, order of the pectina branchidae, class of gastropods. Subclass Molloskia. Yes, concier, but instead of being rolled from right to left, this olive turns from left to right. Is it possible? Yes, my boy, it is a left shell. Shells are all right-handed, with rare exceptions and when, by chance, their spiral is left, amateurs are ready to pay their weight in gold. Concier and I were absorbed in the contemplation of our treasure, and I was promising myself to enrich the museum with it, when a stone, unfortunately thrown by a native, struck against and broke the precious object in concierge's hand i uttered a cry of despair concierge took up his gun and aimed it at the native who was poising his sling at ten yards from him i would have stopped him but his blow took effect and broke the bracelet of amulets which encircled the arm of the native Concier. "'Cried I. "'Concier!' "'Well, sir, do you not see that the cannibal has commenced the attack?' "'A shell is not worth the life of a man,' said I. "'Ah, the scoundrel!' cried Concier. "'I would rather he had broken my shoulder.' concierge was in earnest, but I was not of his opinion. However, the situation had changed some minutes before, and we had not perceived. A score of canoes surrounded the Nautilus. These canoes scooped out of the trunk of a tree, long, narrow, well adapted for speed were balanced by means of a long bamboo pole, which floated on the water. They were managed by skillful, half-naked paddlers, and I watched their advance with some unease. It was evident that these Papuans had already had dealings with the Europeans and knew their ships, but this long iron cylinder... Anchored in the bay, without masts or chimneys. What could they think of it? Nothing good, for at first they kept at a respectful distance. However, seeing it motionless, by degrees they took courage and sought to familiarize themselves with it. Now, this familiarity was precisely what it was necessary to avoid. Our arms, which were noiseless, could only produce a moderate effect on the natives, who have little respect for aught but blustering things. The thunderbolt without the reverberations of thunder would frighten man but little, though the danger lies in the lightning knocked in the noise. At this moment the canoes approached the Nautilus and a shower of arrows alighted on her. I went down to the saloon but found no one there. I ventured to knock at the door that opened into the captain's room. Come in was the answer. I entered and found Captain Nemo deep in algebraic calculations of X and other quantities. I'm disturbing you, said I, for courtesy's sake. That is true, Monsieur Aronnax," replied the captain. But I think you have serious reasons for wishing to see me. Very grave ones the natives are surrounding us in their canoes, and in a few minutes we shall certainly be attacked by many hundreds of natives. Ah, said Captain Nemo quietly, they are coming with their canoes. Yes, sir. Well, sir, we must close the hatchets. Exactly. Exactly. And I came to say to you, nothing can be more simple," said Captain Nemo. And, pressing an electric button, he transmitted an order to the ship's crew. "It is all done, sir," he said, after some moments. pinnace is ready, and the hatchets are closed. You do not fear, I imagine." that these gentlemen could starve in walls on which the balls of your frigate have had no effect? No, Captain, but a danger still exists. What is that, sir? It is that tomorrow, at about this hour, we must open the hatchets to renew the air of the Nautilus. Now, if at this moment... Papuans should occupy the platform. I do not see how you could prevent them from entering." "'Then, sir, uh, you suppose that they will board us?' "'I am certain of it. Well, sir, let them come. I see no reason for hindering them. After all, these Papuans are poor creatures.' And I am unwilling that my visit to the island should cost the life of a single one of these wretches. Upon that, I was going away, but Captain Nemo detained me and asked me to sit down by him. He questioned me with interest about our excursions on shore and our hunting and seemed not to understand the craving for meat that possessed the Canadian. Then, the conversation turned on various subjects, and, without being more communicative, Captain Nemo showed himself more amiable. Amongst other things, we happened to speak of the situation of the Nautilus, run aground in exactly the same spot in this strait, where Dumont de Ville was nearly lost. I propose of this. This was one of your great sailors, said the captain to me. One of your most intelligent navigators. He is the Captain Cook of your Frenchman. Unfortunate man of science, after having braved the icebergs of the South Pole, the coral reefs of the Oceania the cannibals of the Pacific, to perish miserably in a railway train. If this energetic man could have reflected during the last moments of his life, what must have been uppermost in his last thoughts, do you suppose?" So speaking, Captain Nemo seemed moved, and his emotions gave me a better opinion of him. Then, chart in hand, we reviewed the travels of the French navigator, his voyages of circumnavigation, his doubled attention at the South Pole, which led to the discovery of Adelaide and Louis Philippe, and fixing the hydrographical bearings of the principal islands of Oceania. That which your Deville has done on the surface of the seas, said Captain Nemo, that have I done under them, and more easily, more completely than he. The astrolabe and the zealy, incessantly tossed about by the hurricane, could not be worse in Nautilus, quiet repository of labor that she is, truly motionless. In the midst of the waters. Tomorrow, added the captain, rising. Tomorrow, at 20 minutes to 3 p.m., the Nautilus shall float and leave the Strait of Torres uninjured. Having curtly pronounced these words, Captain Nemo bowed slightly. This was to dismiss me, and I went back to my room. There I found Concier, who wished to know the result of my interview. My boy, said I, when I feigned to believe his Nautilus was threatened by the natives of Papua, the captain answered me very sarcastically. I have but one thing to say to you. Have confidence in him, and go to sleep in peace. Have you no need of my services, sir? No, my friend. What is Ned Land doing? If you will excuse me, sir, answered Concier, friend Ned is busy making a kangaroo pie, which will be a marvel. I remained alone and went to bed, but slept indifferently. I heard the noise of the natives, who stamped on the platform, uttering deafening cries. The night passed thus, without disturbing the ordinary repose of the crew. The presence of these cannibals affected them no more than the soldiers of a masked battery care for the ants that crawl over its front. At six in the morning, I rose. The hatches had not been opened. The inner air was not renewed, but the reservoirs, filled, ready for any emergency, were now restored too, and discharged several cubic feet of oxygen into the exhausted atmosphere of the Nautilus. I worked in my room till noon, without having seen Captain Nemo, even for an instant. On board, no preparations for departure were visible. I waited still some time, then went into the large saloon. The clock marked half past two. In ten minutes, it would be high tide. And if Captain Nemo had not made a rash promise, the Nautilus would be immediately detached. If not, many months would pass ere should she leave her bed of coral. However, some warning vibrations began to be felt in the vessel. I heard the keel grating against the rough, calcareous bottom of the coral reef. At five and twenty minutes to three, Captain Nemo appeared in the saloon. "'We are going to start,' he said. "'Ah,' replied I. "'I have given the order to open the hatches.' "'And the Papuans?' "'The Papuans,' answered the captain, slightly shrugging his shoulders.' Will they not come inside the Nautilus? How? Only by leaping over the hatches you have opened. Monsieur Aronnax, quietly answered Captain Nemo. They will not enter the hatches of the Nautilus in that way, even if they were open. I looked at the captain. You do not understand," said he. Hardly. Well, come, and you will see. I directed my steps towards the central staircase. There, Ned Land and Concier were slyly watching some of the ship's crew, who were opening the hatches, while cries of rage and fearful ferocity resounded outside. The port lids were pulled down outside. Twenty horrible faces appeared, but the first native who placed his hand on the stair rail, struck from behind by some invisible force, I know not what, fled uttering the most fearful cries and making the wildest contortions. Ten of his companions followed him. They met with the same fate. Concier was in ecstasy. Ned Land, carried away by his violent instincts, rushed onto the staircase. But the moment he seized the rail with both hands, he, in his turn, was overthrown. "'I'm struck by a thunderbolt.' cried he with an oath. This explained all. It was no rail, but a metallic cable charged with electricity from the deck communicating with the platform. Whoever touched it felt a powerful shock, and this shock would have been mortal if Captain Nemo had discharged into the conductor the whole force of the current. It might truly be said that between his assailants and himself, he had stretched a network of electricity which none could pass with impunity. Meanwhile, the exasperated Papuans had beaten the retreat, paralyzed with terror. As for us, half laughing, we consoled and rubbed the unfortunate Ned land who swore like one possessed. But at this moment, the Nautilus, raised by the last waves of the tide, quitted her coral bed exactly at the 40th minute fixed by the captain. Her screw swept the waters slowly and majestically. Her speed increased gradually, and sailing on the surface of the ocean, She quitted safe and sound the dangerous passes of the Straits of Torres.